This afternoon, we're going to be looking at the second part of our two-part series uh, based in the letter of Philemon. And uh, I've kind of loosely called the series The Church in Your House, a phrase that's used uh, right at the start of the letter. And uh, last time, we looked at how this church, which met in Philemon's house, was a family and was made up of uh, people who were referred to as brothers and sisters, um, but people who were also referred to as workers and as soldiers because they were in the business of advancing the gospel and furthering the cause of Christ. So we looked at how Paul talked about these people that were part of his family, part of his church, and how he used terms of endearment and words of honour and love. Um, and we also explored how he prayed for those uh, people. And this time, we're going to look at the rest of the letter, um, verses 8 through to 25. And to do that, we need to just understand a little bit of the background of the story. So I'm just going to do that very briefly, and then Beck's going to come up and read the, the letter to Philemon to you all. So it was a letter written by Paul to his friend Philemon, who was probably a member of the church at Colossae which was a, a, a town that you can see here on the, on the map um, and in the kind of exploded bit there. So close to Laodicea, uh, which is a church that's referred to in the book of, of Revelation um, and not over far from Ephesus in this area that is now part of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And the letter deals with a personal issue. So it's a, it's a letter from Paul to an individual dealing with a personal issue. And the personal issue is this. Philemon had a slave called Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away. And we don't know why. We don't know why he ran away. We don't really know where he ran to. But what we do know is that at some point, Onesimus came into contact with Paul. And through that contact, came in to, to hear the gospel And through that was utterly transformed. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so this letter is then written to Philemon saying, I'm sending Anisimus back to you. So that's the context. So, Beck, if you could come and read the letter to us. And so this is Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of your faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may be effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, although I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, Yet, for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you and now is useful both to you and to me. 
I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you then regard me, a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with, be with your spirit. Thank you. Shall we pray? Oh God, we do love your word. We love the fact that this letter written nearly 2,000 years ago, can instruct us today. And so by your spirit, we pray, would our hearts be open to what you want to teach us. And may we encounter you even as we read these words, even as we seek to understand them. And Father, may you show us how we can apply them to us as a church. May we truly be a church that is transformed by the gospel, as this church that we read about here was. So glory to you, we pray. Amen. So I want to um, pick up three aspects that I think are in this letter of how the gospel transforms us. And uh, the first way is that I think the, this tells us that the gospel transforms our status. In verse 16, we read that you are no, he, this Anisimus, who is coming back, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave a beloved brother. And the gospel did that. That's the only reason that Paul can write those words. The only reason he can write it is because the gospel has so completely transformed Onesimus that he is no longer the same as he was before. He's no longer a slave. There's been a change in his status. Now, physically and kind of under the law, he still is a slave. He's still the property of Philemon. But spiritually, everything has changed. And the gospel does that to us. And so last time we explored the, the fact that within this letter, there's all this talk of brothers and sisters. The fact that this church is a family. Well, that's not something that's physical necessarily, but it's something that is spiritual because we're put together as the family of God, as the household of God. And so the fact that he's no longer a slave and yet he is a slave uh, physically, um, made me just think about the things that enslave us. And 
the reality is that people can be enslaved by all sorts of different things. And one of the ironic things about it is that people can be enslaved by the very things that they seek to pursue in order to gain freedom and meaning and fulfillment in life. So let me give you some examples. People can be enslaved by possessions, by a love of of collecting and having stuff. And yet maybe they begin to buy these things and accumulate these things because they think that that will bring them happiness. And yet the very thing that they seek to, to get fulfillment from actually ends up enslaving them. And the same can be true of relationships. The same can be true of, of alcohol. The same can be true of love. The same can be true of fitness. The same can be true of career or success or any number of things. And ultimately, at root, they will turn out to be empty and enslave people. On Friday, I was walking... Uh, through a town not over far from here. Um, I was on my way to visit a school, and it was market day in this town centre. And uh, as I was walking through, I just found myself praying for people who were walking past me. That sometimes happens. It, instead of looking in the shops, you kind of look at people and go, oh my word, I'll pray for you. Um, and uh, anyway, I, I walked past this sort of tent that had a fortune inside it. And so I kind of walked past, and as I walked past, kind of looked inside, and much to my uh, kind of uncomfortableness, actually made eye contact with the uh, person who was inside, who was presumably able to tell my future. Um, and uh, But what I felt was that in my spirit, I just got indignant. I got in, This was about half nine in the morning, and I just felt indignant and uh, angry in my spirit that this woman was going to be there peddling lies for the whole of that day. That people would come into her tent to get some sort of hope or glimmer of hope about what the future might hold, some sense of security about what there might be out there, and actually what they get sold is a lie. What they get get given is deceit from the enemy. And it just made me think that that's yet another thing that can enslave us. This kind of false hope of what the future might look like. These lies that the enemy puts in and we kind of get trapped in by them. Well, here, Onesimus was enslaved by his past. He was a slave anyway, as we've said, but the fact that he'd now run away meant he was a slave all over again to that. Because... If you were a slave who ran away, the end was not good for you. It usually resulted in you being killed because you'd run off. Well, the truth of the gospel means that we're no longer slaves. No longer slaves to any of those things I've listed. No longer slaves to anything at all. We're no longer slaves. It transforms, the gospel transforms our status from being slaves to being not slaves, to being free. And Paul uses this phrase twice. So here in the passage, he writes, uh, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother or sister. Paul says that we're no longer slaves and our status in relation to fellow Christians has changed. We're now siblings. But he uses the phrase as well in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 7. 
And in that verse, he says this. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we're no longer slaves, and that affects how we relate to our brothers and sisters. But we're no longer slaves, and that affects how we relate to God as well. So we become sons. And not only sons, but sons inherit. So we get everything that is as God's disposal is for us now. Because we're no longer slaves, but we're sons. The gospel changes, transforms our status. From being slaves to being sons, and from being slaves to being brothers and sisters. So that's the first aspect of how the gospel transforms us. It transforms our status. We're no longer slaves. But secondly, it transforms the way we live. I'd like you to read verse 11 of this letter. So, Anisimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. At the heart of this letter is the story of one man's encounter with the gospel. One man's encounter with Jesus. That's really what it's all about. The fact that Anisimus, the runaway slave, has become a Christian. And he's encountered the gospel probably through Paul, as we've said, and he's been utterly transformed. And the gospel has set him free. And so Paul now begins to paint out this picture. It's a very persuasive letter. If you want a, a, an example of how to write a letter to get someone to do what you think is the right thing, study this letter. Because that's what Paul writes here. Anisimus's life, he says, now looks different. The way he lives is different from the way he lived before. You see, formerly he was useless, and now he is useful. And it's actually a play on Onesimus's name. So many slaves, slaves were renamed when they became slaves, and Onesimus was a fairly common name to be given, because it means useful. And so what Paul is actually saying is, you had this slave, and you called him useful because you thought he would be, but he wasn't. He ran away from you. He didn't do what he was meant to do. He let you down. But now, he's become useful. If you have him back, he will be the fulfillment of what you hoped. In fact, more than that, because he's now your brother. And the Bible is full of these sorts of examples. I'd, I'd encourage you to read through and just spot how many times names are changed by God, and then the significance of the name. So Jacob, known as deceiver, but now becomes Israel. Amazing. And Saul becomes Paul and various others. I'd encourage you to look for them. Anisimus is slightly different though, because he had his name, but wasn't living up to it. Wasn't living up to the potential. Wasn't living up to all that his name stood for. He wasn't being useful. He wasn't being Anisimus. He was being useless. He was named useful, but was useless. And now is restored. 
And just as I was preparing this, I felt that, that there's one or two people here this afternoon who there's all this potential. And maybe it's even potential wrapped up in the meaning of your name, that you know what your name means, and yet you've never seen it realised. Let me tell you something. In God, potential can be realised. In God, names can be given their full meaning. And for some of us, it's time to move into the fullness that God has for us in terms of how we've been named. But the other thing that I really like about this verse is not just this useless to useful, but that Paul uses this phrase, formerly you were, but now. And he uses this quite a few times in his letters. We're going to look at a couple of examples now. It's an indication of what the gospel does in terms of transforming us. Formerly we were like this, but now we are like this. So here, formerly he was useless to you. Now he is useful to you. Romans 11.30 says the following. But just as you once or formerly were disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy or received mercy in some translations. So before the gospel impacted us, we were disobedient. That's what we were. Now we know what it is to have mercy in our lives. There's a transformation of the gospel. In Colossians 1 and verse 22 and 23, we read, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That was pre-gospel. Formerly, we were that. Yet now, he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's true for all of you. Formerly, we were alienated and hostile, engaged in evil deeds, yet now reconciled to him. Isn't that amazing that that previously we were alienated, now we've been reconciled. Previously we were doing evil deeds, now we're living holy and blameless lives. The transformation of the gospel. I'm going to keep going till you get excited. If Colossians chapter 3 and verses 7 and 8, and in them, so he's been talking about immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire and greed, those sorts of things. In them, you also once or formerly walked. But now, you also put them all aside. That's what you were like. The gospel invaded. This is what you're now like. Complete transformation. Ephesians 5.8 Formerly, you were in darkness. Did you notice I read it wrong? Formerly, you were darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. Not just we were scrabbling around in the dark, trying to find our way. No, we were darkness. But now we're light in the Lord. The transformation of the gospel. And the last one, 
It's kind of the other way around. But now in Christ Jesus, we who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This has been a verse which I've just kept coming back to again and again for about two years. This now proximity that I have to God. I was far off and now, bang, right next to him, seated in heavenly places, brought near by the blood of Christ. Formerly we were this, now we are this. That is what the gospel does to us and for us. Anisimus formerly was useless, now is useful. The gospel has utterly, utterly transformed him. And the gospel has that power today. This is not true just because it happened 30 years after Jesus died. So it was still kind of had a bit of power. No, this is true now. This is true for each of us. And Anisimus experienced this change in the way that he lived. Notice how many of those were about the way we lived. Evil deeds, and now we live holy and blameless. We were engaged in this kind of stuff. And now we're not. We've laid it all aside. There's an impact in our lifestyle when the gospel invades. And Anisimus, he ran off, hoping to find freedom, hope and fulfillment. He found it, but only because he encountered Jesus. And suddenly he could come back and instead of being the faithless slave who would run off, he could become the faithful slave who was useful to his master. So the gospel... Changes our status from slaves to sons and slaves to brothers. It transforms the way we live because we're now useful when we were useless. But it also, thirdly, transforms our hearts. Stories of reconciliation, very powerful stories in our culture, I think. And in fact, across the world. And, and even today, we've, in our worship, referenced the events in Paris. If there ever is a, a society that needs reconciliation, it's that city now. And just down the road in Coventry, Coventry is named as a city of peace and reconciliation. We lived there for, for 16 years, and uh, it's a definite theme of the city, that they work towards peace and reconciliation. And really, that kind of rose out of the events which were exactly 75 years ago, last night, when Coventry was flattened. 568 people killed. 863 seriously injured. 2,306 homes totally destroyed. 853 other buildings, shops, hotels, etc. totally destroyed. 60-odd percent of the city's factories flattened. And yet out of that, there came this idea that from the, the destruction and devastation could come a movement that would work towards peace and reconciliation across the world. They're now twinned, Coventry is twinned with 26 different places around the world. That's a lot. And it's all linked with this peace and reconciliation. And those kind of things are, are really important. If you ever get a chance to look on the Truth and Reconciliation Committee uh, website that was set up in South Africa after Mandela was elected and 
there was then this this commission set up to try and right the wrongs, really, and sort out what had happened. If you get a chance to look on the book that people signed and the comments that they made, it will make you weep with the depth of of feeling that there is and the need that there was for forgiveness and reconciliation. But reconciliation ultimately comes down to the to the individual, actually. It's not just about cities trying to reconcile. It's not just about a nation trying to do it. It's about individuals being prepared to accept one another. And it doesn't have to be mega dramatic, although they make the good stories. So I, um, I read a story the other day about a family, um, what they call Linda, Betty and Robert. And uh, they, they were two sisters and a brother who were... S- who were separated when they were very, very young. In fact, Robert was just a baby. And uh, sometime later, the sisters got back in touch and were reconciled. And, uh, and then it took 60 years, 60 years, until they were able to reconcile with their brother. This family just blown apart in the early days of, uh, or early years of their lives, and yet they came back together. And things like that just amaze me. I love stories like that, of things kind of being put back together. But it's not always that dramatic. Um, I've seen it in a very, very small scale in my family. So um, a number of years ago, my uncle kind of drifted away from the family. He wasn't really involved, wasn't really interested in, in anyone else in the family. It's partly to do with his wife at the time, so on, all got a bit complicated. And then he got a new partner and I guess went through a period of reassessing his life. Kind of just thinking about the relationships, what was important and so on. It also at that point came to light the things that his former wife had, had done and how she, much hurt she'd caused. And so he actually got back in touch with his siblings and he had four of them. And um, his parents as well. So my grandparents. And he was restored to the family. And so I don't know whether you remember, but last time there was a photo of my close family up on the, on the screen. My uncle took that photo. Just a tiny bit of reconciliation. But there had to be an undoing of hurt and a healing and a kind of meeting of what was missing. And reconciliation is actually a term used in the exchange of money. And so it was where coins were exchanged or reconciled. And so where there was a lack, it had to be filled up to make sure that the transaction was a fair transaction. And that's what's going on here in reconciliation. Paul is pleading with Philemon to be reconciled to Onesimus. And he's saying there could well be a lack on the part of Onesimus. So in verse 18 he says, if there is, charge it to my account. He's saying, I want you to take him back. I want there to be restoration of relationship. Now let's just think about what Paul was actually asking here. This was a slave who would be deemed to be quite dangerous because he's he's run off probably stolen a load of goods to help him on his way. And Paul is saying, this man has changed. Accept him as you would accept me. That's what he says in verse 17. It's quite a tall order. Because if we read later on in the letter, 
we read that Paul wants to stay in Philemon's house. He says, prepare a room for me. Verse 22. So what he's saying is that you would be prepared to welcome me to stay with your family, to eat your food. You would do my laundry. You would play board games with my kids. If you do that for me, that's what I want you to do for Onesimus. Accept him as you would accept me. And this whole appeal is on the basis of love. Verse 9, yet for love's sake I appeal to you. And in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Reconciliation is about loving those who don't deserve to be loved. Anisimus had done nothing to deserve this. In fact, he'd done utterly the opposite. And yet, Paul says, accept him as you would accept me. Reconciliation is about accepting others in the way God accepted us. And that's a real challenge. Let's be honest about this. This is a real challenge to accept people no matter what. When I read the Gospels, I'm challenged. Who did Jesus accept? Prostitutes. He accepted tax collectors who were traitors because they got money for the enemy. He accepted lepers. He touched them. He accepted outcasts. He accepted the poor. He accepted people who weren't Jews, weren't part of the family of God. He accepted the ritually unclean. He let that bleeding woman touch him. That's who I accepted. And the challenge to us is as is accept people as Jesus accepted people. A while ago, I was on a train going up to Manchester. And uh, I'm not proud of this story, but I'm going to say it anyway. Macclesfield, a man got on the train and he sat by me. Now, if you travel on trains regularly, you'll know that, you know, you try to sit anywhere else other than next to a person. Um, but sometimes it happens that you get a person sat next to you. I immediately found myself wishing that he hadn't. My book was good. I had double seat to myself. I was, you know, just trying to get my thoughts together because I was running some sort of event up in Manchester. And, uh, and not only that, he sat down and smelt. He was pretty, you know, he clearly hadn't washed for quite a while. He'd been drinking, even though it's pretty early in the morning. And I found myself thinking, why did he have to sit next to me? Why did he have to sit next to me? Anyway, I tried to concentrate on my book, and God kept prodding, prodding, prodding. So I couldn't concentrate on my book anymore, which was annoying. Um, But I felt like I should chat to him. I'm not very good at chatting to people on trains. I have an opening question. So... How far are you going? That's pretty much the only question you can ask on a train. Um, so I asked how far he was going, and he said Bolton. I said, okay, um, Bolton, that's interesting. So you have to go into Manchester, and we talked about how you change trains and that kind of thing. And then he said, uh, I'm hoping to move to Bolton. Because, well, it's not good for me living here in Macclesfield. He said, I've got some family in Bolton and, you know, I just, I just need to be there. I need to get out of Macclesfield, to get out of here. 
So I wasn't able to say anything profound. I didn't have any incredible words of knowledge or anything like that. But I did feel like I was able to give him a little bit of encouragement just by chatting to him, actually, the very thing that I didn't really want to do. And just saying that I hoped that things would work out for him and that he would be able to start a new life. But what what I'm now challenged by about my appalling attitude there to another person is that I wasn't living out, accept him as you would accept me. And I realized that I need to check my heart. I need to check my heart. We're getting the keys to a new church building tomorrow. We need to check our hearts, church. Because that is going to give us a visibility in the town that we've not had before. It's going to mean that we can open up our doors and all sorts of people from all walks of life, as Rob prophesied earlier, people from all sorts of nations and backgrounds will be walking through those doors. Are we prepared to accept them as you accept me? Because that's the challenge. That's the challenge of Philemon. Paul says, are you prepared to take back this person who has wronged you and accept him as you'd accept me? Christopher Ash writes, every salvation truth has social implications. Every salvation truth has social implications. Reconciliation is one of them. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says the following. Now these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So reconciliation, the salvation truth, is what happens when the gospel invades us. We are reconciled to God. We're then given the ministry of reconciliation. So the social implication is that we have to tell people, be reconciled to God. But I would say that's not enough. We've got to be reconciled to them. We've got to prepare, be prepared to accept them as we would accept whoever, Jesus, each other. The ministry of reconciliation is more than just speaking about it. It's living it as well. And so I wonder if there's occasions where we find ourselves saying, well, I'm happy to do something for them, but not for them. I'm happy to have that family round for a meal, but I'd really prefer not to have that family round for a meal. I'd be very happy to give them a lift home. It's on my way. For that person over there, it's a bit bit too far out, so I'd prefer not to. I'm quite happy to welcome that new family. They, they look fairly similar to us. But those ones over there, well, someone else can befriend them because they look a bit different. I'd be happy for my children to play with those children. But those ones over there, I'm not so sure about. The gospel demands that we accept as Jesus has accepted us. That's what reconciliation is. 
That's what reconciliation is. We must be a church with wide open arms. And like I say, as we get a new building, there's going to be a change of gear. I really believe that. I'm in faith for growth. I'm in faith for fast growth. I'm in faith for lots of new people. I'm in faith not just for church transfers, but for church additions. As people hear the gospel and are saved and added to us. I'm in faith for that. But are we ready? Are our arms open? Are my arms open? Or am I going to be just a repeat of the man from Macclesfield again and again and again? Clearly, all of us are not the finished article. And it's the grace of God on us that we can do what we can do. But if we're expecting people's lives to be changed as they encounter Jesus and come amongst us, then we have to be prepared to welcome them. We have to be. The gospel transformed us. And the gospel will transform others. And sometimes... Often, we will need to love and accept even before the gospel has transformed them because that is part of the way the gospel works. So, I think the letter to Philemon, it's only 25 verses, but I think it's packed with challenge for us. And I think the challenge is, do we, how closely do we resemble this kind of church? How closely? And do we want it as well? Do we want to be this sort of church that lives in deep, healthy relationship one with another, that prays passionately for each other, that recognises the change that the gospel has put in us and want to see that in others and therefore we have big, wide open arms? Because that's the picture here that Paul paints for us. And I'd just like to pray for us. Just encourage you to still your hearts and just engage again with God. What is it that he's prodding you about, poking you about, challenging you about, encouraging you about? What are the gospel changes that, or what are the changes that the gospel has wrought in your life? I'm going to be encouraging you to think through that at Life Groups this week. What is it that the gospel has done in your life that then will build faith in us to see that happen in others? God, we we say we want to be a church of changed lives and each of us stands here as testimony to your work in our lives. But God, we recognise that there are Loads and loads of people who do not yet know you. And we would dearly love them to encounter you, Jesus. And so even in this period of transition to a new building, even as we go and celebrate our weekend away before we move into our new building, would you prepare our hearts to accept those you send our way? May we be a church who revels in what you've done for us and gets excited about what you're doing in others. Jesus, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that it it transforms us. Thank you that it changes us. 
And God, as we worship now, I just pray would you meet with each of us and open our eyes again to the wonder of all there is in you. Amen.